You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. Well, last weekend... Uh, we kicked off a four-week message series entitled Enduring Hope. And we shared how that this story, which you can find the story that we're looking at and unpacking over the next several weeks, uh, found in this, this short little book in the Old Testament entitled Ruth, the book of Ruth. And we shared how that this is a story that pulls us in, much like Uh, trying to take in the beauty of a natural wonder like uh, I shared uh, personally from my recent uh, experience in visiting the Grand Canyon. And if you were here last weekend, we gave the challenge for every uh, one individually to read the book of Ruth on your own in one setting so that you can just capture uh, the beauty of this story as it unfolds. And I've had people reach out to me and say, you know, I've never read the book of Ruth. And wow, I I read that this week. And if you've not yet taken on that challenge, I want to encourage you to do so even this week. It's a short little book, but it will impact you. And uh, my hope is that each week as we take a look at a different chapter, there's only four chapters, that you'll be pulled in just a little bit deeper into this story. Now, as a way of re a review, or if you weren't here last week, as an introduction uh, to some of the characters of this story. Now, although um, our reading this week will shift the focus to the title character of this book, and that's Ruth, last weekend we actually began by focusing on her mother-in-law, a woman named Naomi, who was a Jewish woman originally from Bethlehem who had moved to Moab, a country across the Jordan River, and would be located in today the country of Jordan. And uh, she moved there with her husband Elimelech and her two sons. They moved there because they were experiencing a famine in Israel. And so they moved there because they hear there's food. Now, while in Moab, Elimelech, Naomi's husband dies. With time, Naomi's two sons marry women named Orpah and Ruth. Now, we're going to not talk about Orpah today, but we're going to be talking a lot about Ruth, okay? And approximately 10 years later, Naomi's two sons die, leaving uh, Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws as widows. Now, finding themselves in an extremely vulnerable position, Uh, Naomi leads the charge, and she hears that now there's uh, food, there's relief from the famine back in her home country in Bethlehem. And so they decide to travel back to Israel. Now, over time, uh, Orpah goes back to Moab, but we witnessed last weekend the incredible devotion and loyalty of Ruth to leave her homeland and to travel to a foreign country in a culture Uh, and actually a culture where she was looked down on because of her nationality, to support her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, with this as the backdrop, let's read the last verse that we read last weekend 
picking up this story as an introduction of these two women, Naomi and Ruth. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Now, we mentioned last week, it's fascinating in this story, the names of the the various characters and how their names have significance. Ruth's name means companion. And she truly is a faithful, loyal companion for Naomi. Now, we mentioned last week, Naomi's name means the sweet one or sweetie. And yet, as we get to the end of this introduction, developing these two characters, we, we learn that Naomi's disposition is no longer sweet, but would more likely be described as our first observation as bitter and empty. Picking up the reading in verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. What do we see here? We see Naomi is wrestling with her view of God, as we talked about last week. As she struggles with a dilemma that many still struggle with today, a question that I'm asked often by people, maybe you've asked this question, or maybe as you try to share your faith with others in your family or in your neighborhood or friends at work, maybe others have posed this question to you, and maybe you've had difficulty answering it. Why do bad things happen sometimes to those who seem like they're good people? Why do some individuals who long and have dreamed all their life of being married and having a great, strong, healthy family find themselves single? Or maybe after a traumatic divorce, single again? Why do some people suffer so much loss through untimely deaths of not just one family member, but maybe multiple family members over a relatively short period of time? Why do some find themselves battling disease or or some kind of chronic illness? Why do others battle depression or personal emptiness when others around them seem so happy and so carefree? How do you make sense of such dilemmas? Is it God punishing? I mean, that's how Naomi had read it, right? She says, the Lord has risen his hand against me. And when you find yourself in those tough situations, do you question, is God punishing you? Has God abandoned Naomi here? Or if you're going through a tough season in your life, do you question and ask yourself in your own mind, is is God abandoning me? Why does God seem so distant in in, in the presence of this loss, this setback, or this heartache I'm experiencing. As we'll see in this story, God had not abandoned Naomi. Instead, he's quietly at work to bring deliverance, rescue, and hope of a brighter future, not just for her, 
but for her entire family. In fact, God is on record of saying in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. And for those of us who find ourselves in a relationship, a family member or a friend, someone who's going through a difficult time, they've been suffering great loss or heartache, how do we respond to them? What words of encouragement can we give to them? When you've found yourself having someone close to you going through a real difficult time and they ask questions like, why is this happening? How do you respond? You know, I sometimes am called in to difficult situations. I receive those calls sometimes late at night where somebody's gone through a traumatic experience in their life or their family and they just need to talk. And I guess in my role, I find myself in those situations often. And honestly, there's times where I'm just at a loss to know what to say. And I've even told people that. I've just said, I don't even know what to say right now. And you know, I think that's okay. I, I used to put a lot of pressure on myself that I had to think of something really profound to say, something profound to share. But I think that we can take note from Ruth here. Her name means companion. And what do we find? We, find, we, don't, we don't find any listing here that, that Ruth really says anything profound to Naomi, that she gives her any great insight to help turn the table for her. In fact, if, if we really think about this story, Ruth herself has experienced great loss, right? She lost her husband. She lost her uh, brother-in-law. She lost her father-in-law all in a short season of time as well. So maybe Ruth is reeling in her own loss and her own grief. But one thing we can learn from Ruth is she's a companion that sticks by the side of someone that's hurting. I don't see her saying some kind of quaint little quote for for Naomi to try to find some encouragement from. In fact, I try really hard in those circumstances not to say something quaint that sometimes comes out of our lips even before we think. Things like, you know, well, God's in control or you just need to trust God. God has a reason for this. God won't give you more than you can handle, which, by the way, isn't really even in Scripture. Or God has a plan for your life. Now, I'm not saying those comments in and of themselves are necessarily wrong, but I'm not sure that when someone's really brokenhearted, when they're really feeling bitter or empty, I'm not sure that those kind of statements really give much help. Sometimes what I try to do is just sit and be there and just be present for that person that's hurting. You know, I think of the story of Job in the Old Testament. Job suffered great loss and and went through much personal pain. And, and he had these friends that came around him, and they were at their best when they just sat there with Job and were silent. 
In fact, when they started opening their mouth, they put their foot in their mouth, and they ended up discouraging Job. And, and I think we can take a lesson from that, that sometimes we're at our best when we're just silent and maybe stop by someone's home that's hurting and bring a meal and just say, I just want you to know I'm here for you. Or drop by a gift card to encourage them to go out to dinner or, or a bouquet of flowers or a card that just says, I'm thinking about you. You see, sometimes it's just being present and being that companion. And maybe through that, reminding them that the Lord is present. He might seem distant, but he's there. And that he's on record of saying that he's near the brokenhearted. And that's a lot of times what I share with people that are hurting I'll just share, you know, my heart breaks for you. And, and what I, my view of God is that his heart breaks for you too. Can we just pray to a God that loves you? And that's really the best I've got to offer oftentimes. And sometimes I think that's all that people need. We notice in verse 22 that Ruth doesn't give this quaint advice. She just is a companion. She stays by Naomi's side, and it reads in Scripture, So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law arriving Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, as we continue in this story, we see that God is at work in some amazing ways. So our second observation from this second section of Ruth is that we begin to see some hints of hope. You know, this message series is entitled Enduring Hope, but when we start the story, when we look at the bitterness and the emptiness that exists in Naomi's life, there's anything but hope right there. But, but what we start seeing as the story unfolds is we see these subtle signs that there's hope awaiting, that God's at work in the midst of the heartache. For example, we see that these two companions returned to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, we know, is the, the village that Jesus would later be born in and about 1,100 years later. But the word Bethlehem, I don't know if you knew this, the name means house of bread. So now they learn that even though this famine had them leave Bethlehem initially, now there's bread available in Bethlehem. In fact, they arrive at chapter 2 that we find that there is uh, a harvest going on. Now, I won't get into the fact that they were harvesting barley because maybe some of you know what barley makes and maybe think, yeah, that would bring some hope. But we won't go there. But let's go on in verse 1 of Ruth chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. We're told in the NIV that Boaz is this man of standing. Another translation, the New Living, New Living Translation, describes him as wealthy and as an influential man in Bethlehem who just happens to enter the story at this time. Now, as we'll see throughout this story, God continues to show up in what some would describe as a coincidence. And yet, I I like the definition of coincidence that sometimes is attributed to Albert Einstein. The quote, a coincidence is a small miracle when God chooses to remain anonymous. I like that. I love it when God shows up in ways like this in Scripture. 
And I love it when God shows up in our lives if we'll simply have the eyes of faith to see it. For example, we decided earlier this year that we wanted in the month of May to to develop this story of Ruth because we thought it was a great story in the midst of heartache uh, to see this example of enduring hope. And hope is our key theme for this word. We want to be a people that cling to God's, the hope that's found in God. And we want to also bridge the gap and offer that hope to others. And so we thought it would be important to revisit hope in the month of May. And so we chose Ruth. It's four chapters long. There's four weekends that we're going to be developing this story. And, and I was pretty excited about that. And then Jay and I went on vacation right before this series began. And, and while we're on vacation, my, one of my daughters said, Dad, I've been reading this book that I really like. And and I've been inspired by it, and, and I think you would like it. And I said, oh, really, what's it about? She said, it's about the book of Ruth. I said, well, that's pretty good timing. And she said, would you like, would you like to read it? I said, absolutely. And, and, and in so many ways, you know, you could just say, well, that's a coincidence, but I, I viewed that as confirmation that this is the very book that God wanted us to look at as a church. Now, in his book, the author Paul E. Miller describes that many can miss the the good news of God's love and hope in their own lives because they've embraced ideas that aren't biblical. He describes uh, what he calls a view of life that calls it the circle of life, okay? The circle of life and death, okay? Where it's a circle. Maybe when I talk about the circle of life, you think of a Disney movie. And by the way, Disney movies can be inspiring and fun, but don't base your theology on Disney movies. I just want to make sure you know that. Because when I watch these Disney movies, I hear all these statements. I go, I don't think that's right. And so sometimes we can be more influenced by Disney than we can by Scripture. And we can think that our view of life is just a a circle of life. And some people would maybe describe that as karma. You know, what comes around goes around. But you know, the truth of it is karma, although a lot of people, I even hear Christians describe it, karma is not a Christian worldview. And in his book, Paul Miller reminds the reader that a biblical worldview would be more accurately described as a J-curve. He describes this J-curve of where that there's this valley where we experience loss, we experience even death, but then on the other side of that, there's resurrection. We see this J-curve throughout the Bible. We see it in this story of Naomi, who we find her at a low point of bitterness and empty, suffering great loss. And then God shows up in in some amazing ways through these hints of hope, that really develop into lasting hope described in the second half of this book that I'm really looking forward to developing the next two weeks. Now, we obviously see this J curve most clearly in the life of Jesus, right? You can remember it, J for Jesus. He experienced persecution and, and suffering and death. And what a dark day that must have seemed to his first followers the day he died on the cross. But little did they know that what was coming was a great day, the day of resurrection. 
Now, for those of us that have came into a relationship with Christ, we've experienced that in our own lives, right? When we get to that point in our life where we recognize that we're headed the wrong trap, that, that, that we need to have a change of heart. In fact, even if you've been involved in 12-step groups or have any exposure to AA or groups like that, you'll find groups like that even talking about hitting bottom, right? Sometimes we get to that point where we hit bottom and we recognize that we need to look to, to God and His power and His strength and that as we humbly repent and turn from that which is the past, and the Bible calls that repentance, and as we experience the new life and God has created this beautiful act of faith, baptism, where we're united with Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, and we can experience new life. Unfortunately, some in their bitterness in that valley never look up for God to write the J-curve in their life. Instead, they just downwardly spiral into deeper resentments and bitterness. Or even worse, in that low point of life, they look to something else or someone else to fill the emptiness in their heart and their life. And instead of looking to God, they can easily get trapped into an addiction or some kind of painful trap that just leads to more hurt and more heartache. It appears that Ruth is not simply content to stay in this valley wallowing in bitterness and yet she is an example of demonstrating enduring hope putting her faith in action doing something in verse 2 we read and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes find favor you kind of get the sense that Naomi's just kind of sitting at home woe is me and woe is us because we're widows and we can't make a living and, and then Ruth speaks up and says, well, maybe I can go to the fields and find some food there. Have you ever noticed that two people can face the same challenges in life and yet respond totally different? One person can respond with heartache and, and, and just wallow in bitterness. And another person can approach the same difficulty and yet look to God and, and through faith find hope and find a new way of life. Which are you? Are you more like Naomi and just kind of wallow in your downness? Or are you like Ruth? Do you look for some solutions? Naomi was bitter, blamed God, and seemed paralyzed. Ruth is seeking help from God's provision. Possibly out of an awareness of Jewish scripture, she demonstrates hopefulness for relief. Interesting, in Jewish scripture, I don't know if you knew this, what we call the Old Testament, there's a section of Jewish law, and it's, it's one of those sections that can be kind of dry and boring, and it's easy to skip over, but it's really cool because God has provided a means for his people to provide for those who are hurting. In Leviticus 19, verse 9 and 10, it says, When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your field, and do not pick up what the har harvesters drop. It's the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines, and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. You see, God 
cares for the poor and for the foreigner. And yet Naomi seems paralyzed by her bitterness. She should have known the scripture. She was Jewish. But Ruth is the one that says, let me go to the fields. Naomi says to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. So what do we see? Ruth puts her faith into action, and as a result, ends up being at the right place at the right time. And again, in verse 3, we see that God shows up in this story in some amazing ways. What we might call coincidence, I would rather call God incidences. In verse 3, it says, as it turned out. In verse 4, it says, just then Boaz arrived. And what do we see? We see in the midst of this, Ruth's character shines. In verse 5, we read, Boaz asked the overseer of the harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean. That's what it means to go behind the harvesters and pick up what's left over. Let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Now, last week as a church, last weekend, we had a great opportunity to show love and kindness toward two families who needed a home. And although we celebrated last week the outcome of our Help Build Hope, we still have t-shirts available from that, we want to continue to celebrate as a church the opportunity we had to put, our, put into action our vision statement to be bridging the gap to those without Jesus so that no one has to live without hope. And as thrilled as we are with the outcome of this very important event, we want to make sure that these type of efforts aren't just once or twice a year events. But we are looking for more and more ways to intentionally bridge the gap to those who need hope. This weekend, our entire leadership had a retreat. In fact, we had some fun in the retreat. We went to Breakout, which was a fun experience. I can tell you about that later. But our, our entire leadership team spent Friday evening and most of Saturday together and we ask ourselves the tough questions. Are we really living out our vision statement? Are we really being intentional about living out this vision to bring hope and offer hope to those that don't have it? Yeah, we've had some great high points like help build hope, but are we doing it week in and week out? And so we committed ourselves to put together an action plan that it's a consistent part of who we are as a church. So we want to encourage you to stay tuned over the next several months as we're going to be further developing this plan for the future. And yet this needs to be true not simply for us collectively, but also for each of us individually as followers of Jesus. Boaz here reports from the overseer that Ruth works hard, only stopping for a short rest. Later in the reading, we're going to see that, that Boaz had also learned of her kindness and her loyalty toward her mother-in-law. Here's the point. 
people will notice and will eventually become aware of good examples of love, faith in action, and kindness. Did you know that people just like Boaz and the overseers, well, we see in the story, Boaz and overseers are making note of Ruth's example. But did you know that people in your family, people in your neighborhood, people at the workplace are making observations of you each day as well? They notice what your attitude is. They notice what your work ethic is. They notice how you treat others. They notice your integrity in difficult situations. Do they see someone that represents someone who's trusting in God? Do they see someone who's representing a follower of Jesus? You see, just as leaders of Southwest are intentionally making plans for us to make more initiatives to be bridging the gaps with others, I want to call this weekend you as individual believers to be intentionally asking yourself, how can I bridge the gap with people in my life to share Jesus with? How can I bridge the gap with people that are around me that need hope to offer hope to them and to point them to the one who will give them hope? Are you personally looking for those opportunities? You see, like Ruth, there's no question that everyone here is setting an example for your family, for your neighbors, and for those you work around. But the question is, what kind of example is it? Well, finally, as God places Ruth and Boaz in the right place at the right time, we conclude by noticing that Ruth ends up finding favor. As we keep reading in chapter 2, we see that Ruth truly finds favor from the love, protection, and kindness of Boaz. In verse 8, so Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. Boy, we could preach a sermon on that, but we won't. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. And she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. What do we see? We see Ruth humbly received the grace and kindness of God orchestrated through the generosity of Boaz. I love verse 12 when it says, where Boaz says, May you richly be rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Over the next two weeks, we're going to dig into chapter 3 and 4. We're going to see a beautiful love story emerge between Ruth and Boaz that makes the royal wedding from yesterday pale in comparison. 
So come back next week and invite others to see this timeless, beautiful love story and a beautiful display of God setting the stage for what was going to happen more than a thousand years later in Bethlehem. Because Christ would come to show the depth of God's love, what we only see hints of in the Ruth story. As we close this morning, we're going to observe what we do each weekend, a time of communion, to be reminded of the love of Christ. And yet on this morning, I want to encourage you to consider this. When we humbly turn to Christ, we allow God to create a J-curve of hope in our life. And in the midst of that, we find love, kindness, and God's favor. Not because we deserve it, but because we need it. One commentator pointed out in this chapter, chapter 2, that Ruth is described as the lowest of the low of the servants. And yet, she's the one that found great favor because she was humble. She humbly acknowledged her need for help. I love communion for a lot of reasons. I I love it because if you've had a bad week where you think, man, I just fell on my face this week of living out my faith, At communion, we're reminded that it's not about our performance, it's about what Jesus has done for us. And then if you've had a good week, you know, where you're just feeling like, man, I love being a Christian, I'm starting to figure this Christianity thing out, communion's a time for us then to humble ourselves and realize we're not all that. And if it it wasn't for God intervening in our life and writing a J story in our life, we would be hopeless, and empty as well. So I love communion because it just gets us centered of our desperate need for a God of loving kindness, a, a, a desperate need to come under the shelter of God's wings and God's grace. Think about the J story that God's writing in your life or is written in your life and give thanks during this time of communion. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We thank you for these stories in the Old Testament, how we see you setting the stage for Jesus to come. And we thank you for how you brought hope in hopeless times for Ruth. And we thank you for how you keep doing that today. Help us during this time of communion. Help us be reminded of our desperate need for a Savior. Help us give thanks for how you've written hope into our life. And maybe, Father, there's somebody that came in here today feeling pretty hopeless. I pray that maybe they've just got a hint of hope. And during this time of communion, you'll reveal that to them a little more clearly. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and dying and showing favor on us. It's in your name we pray. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.